Welcome everyone to the Lighter Mind Podcast. In the Lighter Mind, we explore spirituality, personal growth, trauma, recovery, and the path to wholeness. The Lighter Mind Podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any forms of mental illness. We are not licensed therapists unless otherwise noted, and these are experiential conversations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Lighter Mind Podcast. I'm sitting with Crow and Alan again, and today, and for the next couple of episodes, we are going to be sharing our stories with the listeners, and the intention behind sharing our stories is to create some level of relatability and I really want the listeners to know who we are, what our background is, where we're coming from. And for me personally, when I was early in recovery, hearing another another addict's story um, gave me hope. And whatever, whatever these stories do for everyone else that is listening, um, I hope you get something out of this, some type of relatability. Um, my, my story is going to be the one that we're going to be doing today. And I'm going to basically break down the first section of my, my using days, my early childhood and kind of chronological order. And near the end, I'm going to be breaking into more of a solution oriented and what it took for me to get sober, what it took for me to stay sober, some of the traumas that I've overcome And yeah, that's where we're going to be starting at today. Uh, Gentlemen, do you have anything to share before I I kick this off? I don't think so, Kyle. We may be interrupting you, though, on occasion, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I think we're looking good. I think this is pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll be... Um, yeah, I would say that I'm, ex- I'm excited to do this, but at a certain extent, I'm also, I'm a little bit nervous because this is, this is kind of a vulnerable thing that I'm doing right now. Um, but I think I'm at the point in my life where it's, it's about time that I, I share who I am as a person, what I've been through. Yeah, good. Right on. All right. So, um, for all the listeners, if you get annoyed of my voice, I'm very sorry because I'm going to talk a lot today. Um, so my name is Kyle, and I'm a uh, recovering drug and drug addict and alcoholic. I was born in Denton, Texas, and I was adopted at about two weeks old. And later on in my story, I'll kind of get into the relevance of my adoption. But I grew up in Texas for about three years, and I moved to Colorado Springs with my younger sibling, who was also adopted a couple years after me, and my two parents. So I wanted to kind of go into what my early family dynamics ended up looking like. So I grew up with a father who was very intelligent. He was very funny. If anyone ever gets a chance to meet him, he's, he's a hilarious man. And he was very strong. But he grew up in a household where he never learned to be emotionally vulnerable. And so he was incredibly stoic with all of his emotions. 
And so that was one of the ways that I had learned to demonstrate emotions when I was a kid was that instead of showing emotion, I need to shut them down, push them down. I can't cry. I can't be angry or anything like that. And then I grew up with my mother, on the other hand, who was kind of on the other side of the spectrum. And she she was she's a very caring woman. Most of the time, she's very intelligent. She's very funny as well. She's a very strong woman. But she grew up in a household where in order to get heard in her family dynamic, she needed to lash out and to be over emotional. And so her emotional regularity was completely out the window. And most of her emotions came out as anger. And so I grew up in this household between emotional stoicism and the other side, which was completely erratic, over-emotional behavior. And that's the way that I had learned through up until just recently. That's how I've basically regulated my emotions my entire life. And then I also have a younger sibling. And my younger sibling, when we were younger, had a lot of emotional and mental health issues. And they ended up getting, I felt like at the time, they ended up getting more attention than I did when I was younger. And I kind of grew up being a little bit lonely in my household, not feeling like I I had gotten enough attention from um, my sibling or either of my parents. And I learned at a very young age that any attention was good attention. And so I learned that if I was mischievous and if I misbehaved, that I would get bad attention, but bad attention was still attention for me. So I learned that pattern at a very young age, um, this attention-seeking behavior. And I went through kind of the rest of my, my elementary school days trying to, trying to make friends as much as I could, trying to attention-seek, and just c- trying to kind of find my way within the world. And then after about when I was the age of 13, I ended up going into middle school. And in middle school, um, about the age of 13, about seventh grade, is when I, I got involved with a group of people at the school that I would say were kind of like the jackass crew. They were basically just menaces to society. They were bullies. Um, they like to, we, we like to humiliate people. We would vandalize. We would, um, we started a fight club in, um, the bathroom at school one day, you know, we, we were, um, everyone that we we were like everyone's worst nightmare basically. And within this culture that I was in, it was basically survival of the fittest because the weakest ones were going to get bullied or picked on. And so, What this did for me in my attention-seeking behavior is that it exacerbated it quite a bit because if one person in the group was showing off and they were like the the star of the show, they weren't getting bullied. And so that ended up making my attention-seeking behavior just get awful. And then also in middle school, I stumbled upon my first true addiction, which was relationships and females. And um, this is kind of where my my abandonment trauma, my adoption trauma started to kind of play into my life, where I would 
go into relationships with dozens and dozens of women at my school. I would date them for two weeks to a month at a time. I would manipulate their emotions. I would get them to fall in love with me or to like really love me or to really like me. And then I would end up breaking their heart. And then I would go date their best friend and do the same thing. And I did that basically all through my entire middle school career. And really what I, what I was doing is that my, my adoption trauma, which for anyone who's adopted, who's listening, it, it brings up this abandonment fear. And this fear of abandonment is that if I get close to anyone that they are going to end up leaving me. And what that taught me is that I can't let anyone close to me. I can't be vulnerable. I have to be the one that breaks people's hearts because I'm not going to get my heart broken ever again. Like I had thought that my, my uh, biological family had done to me. And so also my middle school years is when I started experimenting with marijuana and alcohol. So my, my main, my main addictions were women. And I would say my second main addiction was probably chaos. And then I started to kind of experiment with narcotics. Um, after, after my middle school, I went to a high school that is, um, that was on the air force Academy out where I live. And this is where things started to kind of really take a turn for me. So at this point in my life, um, I was a freshman in high school and I started to get involved with the seniors that were on the marching band on the drum line because I was in the marching band my freshman year. And they were they were into drinking and into smoking weed. And so I started to smoke weed very, very heavily my freshman year of high school. I was still running through as many women as I could possibly do, having like this almost power trip over over females. And um, I'd gotten to a point in my my freshman year where my parents were not very happy with my drug use. We were playing this constant like cat and mouse game where I would come home high and they would try to catch me being high. Um, I was getting depressed. I wasn't going to any of my classes and. Um, about midway through my freshman year, I got involved with a cheerleader who I was incredibly infatuated with. She was she was a year or two older than me, and I basically just held this woman as like the golden goddess of my entire life. And me being as depressed as I was, I wasn't very um, I wasn't very pleasant to be around. And so she ended up breaking up with me because she said that I was I was boring or that, you know, whatever she said. And this is when I had taken I had done something incredibly drastic with my life. And after she had broken up with me, I had called my family to come pick me up from school, I told them that I was sick. I went home and I opened up the medicine cabinet and I took everything that was in the medicine cabinet in an attempt to kill myself for the first time. Um, and I, I have no idea what I took, but I know that I took probably over a hundred pills. And as I was laying in my bed, basically kind of going in and out of consciousness, um, my attention seeking 
behavior started to kick in again. And even though I was basically on the verge of death, I still wanted attention from it. And so I started texting people at school and telling them goodbye and all this other kind of stuff. And of course, they went and they told the counselor and the counselor called my family. My family came and took me to the emergency room. They pumped me full of charcoal to kind of neutralize everything in my system. And I, I remember laying in the hospital bed with both of my family members in there. And I told them, you guys, we're going to have some rough teenage years ahead of us. And that was a bit of an understatement. So I went through that experience. And um, after I had gotten out of the hospital and back into school, I continued my um, my drug addiction pretty heavily. I kept smoking weed. I was experimenting with alcohol quite a bit. I started experimenting with stimulants, um, with Adderall and basically anything else I could kind of get my hands on. Um, and I got to this point where my parents were so fed up with my behavior that they had called a, um, kind of an interventionist to come sit down with me. And it was kind of this clinical psychologist who sat down and wanted to have a conversation about what my drug use was like, uh, what, what my family life was like and all this kind of stuff. And me being the little attention-seeking whore that I was at the time, I started making up all kinds of stuff about these crazy drugs that I'd never even seen in my entire life, about how I was a PCP addict and I was doing cocaine, that I was in a, I was in a gang and I was doing all just all this all this total bullshit. And, um, inevitably about a week later, uh, my parents picked me up from school, told me that they were taking me to a dentist appointment and dropped my ass off at rehab for the first time. And this is still my freshman year. I was about 15 years old. And this was one of those rehabs where they said it was voluntary, but it wasn't really because as soon as we pulled into the parking lot, Five gigantic doctors came out of the hospital, surrounded the car and said, get inside, you're going to rehab. And um, so I, I went to this rehab. I was basically I was forced into rehab the first time. Um, I didn't want to get sober and I was lying my way through the entire process, you know, just lying to try to try to get some level of street cred to all these other all these other 14 year old addicts, because that was really important for me at the time was to get street cred from other degenerates. And, um, I, I, you know, made up all my drug history and all this kind of, I was, you know, just bullshitting my way through the whole thing. And when I got out of rehab, um, my parents had taken me down to Louisiana to see my mom's side of the family. And I ended up relapsing immediately on alcohol. And I had my second suicide attempt while I was down there where I tried to hang myself, um, with a, a cord from a, a, from like a TV cord or something like that ended up just crushing my windpipe. Um, by the grace of God, I had made that, I had made it out of there. Um, but this is for anyone who's listening, who has kind of dealt with, with suicidal depression. Um, my, my fiance has kind of explained it to me where when you have like suicidal depression, it's almost like you're sitting in a burning building on the top floor and there's an open window nearby. And what my escape was, is I wanted to jump out the window instead of sitting in that burning building. And that's kind of what it feels like when you, when you get to that low place in your life where like you just want to end because it, it literally felt like 
my life was so chaotic. There was so many things out of my control and I felt completely powerless. I was ashamed of myself. I felt guilty and I just wanted to wait out. So I had recovered from that, from that, um, suicide, my second suicide attempt. And I went back to started going back to school. Um, my, the rest of my freshman year, I basically went into, um, a high level of defiance with my parents and I started to become very aggressive towards people at my school. So I started trying to pick fights with people. And I had another lovely experience this freshman year where the, uh, the cheerleader that I had broken up with her and I had gotten into a fight and me once again, being attention seeking told her that I was going to burn her house down. And the more attention seeking you know, that I, I was even more attention seeking. And I went around to all of her friends. And I told them that I was going to burn her house down. You know, just you wasn't actually going to do it. Just wanted to stir up, stir up something. And, um, <clears throat> you know, this the uh, couple days later, these two lovely police officers showed up at my house and um, they brought me to juvenile hall for a night and I got strapped with a restraining order and a domestic violence charge at the age of 15, um, towards this, towards this woman at my high school. And so as anyone who's listening, I can just like my, my, you can tell that my, my high school, my first bit into high school was not going well. Um, I went through the rest of my high, my rest of my, um, freshman year, uh, smoking in the bathroom, skipping my uh, skipping classes, coming to class high, just basically just being a menace until about like the last three days of my my freshman year. I got caught smoking again and the dean of students sat down with me and told me that he didn't like my life decisions. He said that I was ba- he told me I was fucking up and I was and um, he sat down with my mom and basically told her the same thing and um she kind of gave him the middle finger and walked out in the hallway and said, we are never told me that we are never coming back to this high school ever again. And I ended up at a charter school the previous year. And at this charter school is when I ran into Mr. Alex and Alex was on our, our last episode for everyone who's been following these, these podcasts in order. Um, Alex was someone that, I had known through grade school and middle school, and he was actually at, at the same high school my freshman year with me, but I wasn't, I wasn't friends with him, but just by the grace of God, he had gotten kicked out of the same high school and ended up at the same school that I did. And when I ran into Alex, this is when the ego and the self-delusion started kicking up a notch because Alex and I started doing a lot of drugs. Um, we, we would get into these massive ego battles, um, to see who could do the most drugs basically without passing out. So we would, we would experiment with, we started experimenting with heavier drugs. I started to get into psychedelics and we started dabbling with cocaine. Um, later on I, I had found methamphetamine and Alex had, had run into heroin and, we had this crazy persona of just being a rock star. And we thought that we were, we literally thought that we were part of like the Motley crew because we were in a band together. Um, we were, you know, him and I had gotten all the chicks in high school and stuff like that. We were, 
Um, we'd kind of both, you know, we're kind of both raised in a family and like in kind of like an unhealthy family dynamic. So we had a lot to kind of relate to each other on. Um, and we loved going into parties and drinking everyone's alcohol and then leaving. And we thought we thought that that was like our I, I the highest ideal of like success was like, I'm going to I'm going to drink three bottles of alcohol tonight and then I'm going to go piss all over your car and then I'm going to leave the party. And we thought that that was like that was what made us cool. Um, so I went through kind of the rest of my my high school career um, still repeating my my abandonment trauma with women, dating as many women as I could, um, breaking up with them, sometimes dating multiple women at the same time. Um, I went through experimenting with harder and harder drugs. I had um, this constant cat and mouse game with my family. I was being forced to go to an IOP program, which is an an intensive outpatient program, um, which is where I would have to take two to three random drug tests a week. I would have to go to one group therapy session and one individual therapy session. And so around the time of high school, I learned how to be very, very secretive. I learned how to pass a drug test. I learned, you know, even if I was high, I learned how to be very, like, very deceptive. Um, I learned how to lie. I learned how to lie very, very well in high school. Um, Later through high school, I did get caught a couple of times getting high by my parents. Um, I, I ended up having to be forced into rehab once again and lied my way through that. I um, basically my entire rest of like my high school career up until my senior year was just kind of like this downward trajectory into hell. (laughs) And um, when I got into my senior year of high school, there was there was two two very big things that happened to me. So during my senior year of high school, is when I started to identify my drugs of choice, which were stimulants, and later on it became methamphetamine. And I had also had one more attempt at suicide. So I had a... um, The intention of this story is I kind of want people to understand just how crazy the mind of an addict can actually get. And the depths that like our emotions go to. So I had I had an experience where I had been I had been up for multiple days on some stimulant, whatever it was. And for anyone who's listening who has done stimulants, you know that like or for anyone who's just been awake for more than 48 hours at a time, you know that you kind of start losing touch with reality. You can start gotten, you know, you get to this point where you can hallucinate, you have your emotions are completely unregulated. Um, you, you can you become very paranoid, very agitated, very easily. And when you add narcotics into the mix, it makes it about 100 times worse. So I had this experience in high school where I was supposed to go to my my weekend job. Um, I had been up for probably 72 hours straight on whatever stimulant of my choice was at the time. And I was way, way too messed up to work that day. So I told my, my boss that 
you know, I was feeling sick and I had to go home. But my parents thought that I was supposed to be working. So I sat out in the parking lot of my job for about seven, eight hours. And I was, I was at this point where my body was so exhausted, my mind was so exhausted that I had this experience where I laid my seat back in my car to take a nap. And I woke up and I had almost like an out of body, like astral projection experience where I opened my eyes and I could see my body sitting up in my car seat and my body was trying to communicate with the trees that were in front of my car, which was weird as hell to me. And I, I sat there like, lean, like leaning back in my seat, looking at the back of my head. And I, I had eventually I sat up into my body. And the first thing that I remember saying was, silly, Kyle, trees can't talk. And I was just out of my fucking mind. <laughs> and I had another experience. Apparently, I had called Alex while all of this was happening. And he told me that I told him that there was, there was gnomes dance, dancing across the hood of my cars. Like, I was, I was, not, I was not on planet Earth. <laughs> I was not on planet Earth. But as I was sitting there just having like these crazy, um, basically schizophrenic moments induced by stimulants, I had ran out of car, or, or out of gas in my car because I had been sitting for so long. And I had told my, told my dad to come fill up my car. He was disappointed with me for being irresponsible, blah, blah, blah. We got in a big fight. And I ended up um, going home. And we got in another big fight and I ended up leaving the house out of just like pure terror and rage. And I got in my car and I got it into my head once again that I was in a burning building and I wanted to jump out the window. And I had decided that I was going to use my vehicle to drive off a cliff. And so in Colorado Springs, where I live, there is this place called Garden of the Gods. And in Garden of the Gods is basically it is a huge boulder field with these gigantic um, rock structures and all these cliffs and everything. And I decided that I was going to take my car up to one of the dirt roads and I was going to drive my car off of one of the one of the biggest cliffs that I could find. And I had taken my car up there. I had found the cliff that I was going to drive off of. And I had gone up the road a little bit to make a U-turn and was starting to drive back towards where I was going to go off. And I got a text from my mom and she had said, you know, hey, honey, like, come home. Let's talk about this and whatever, whatever. And I started to text her back. And as I was texting her back, I was not paying attention to the road. And I ended up going off the road, but not in the place that I had intended. And so instead of going off a cliff, I rolled my car um, down a hill about three, four times. And my car got lodged between these boulders that I probably prevented me from actually dying. Um, and uh, the noise was it was, you know, it was a cacophony. And so the, everyone in the surrounding neighborhood here heard it. They called the police. I got taken to the hospital in an ambulance and um <laughs> One of the most fucked up things happened as we're as we're driving out of this canyon. There wasn't there wasn't very good uh, cell phone service. So as we're driving out, the EMT called my parents and told them, 
hey, hey, um, you're, we have your son Kyle here. He's been in an accident. And then the phone call lost service. <laughs> and so my parents are probably sitting at home shitting their pants over what Kyle has possibly gotten himself into that night. Yeah. So I end up having to go to the hospital. Um, they had a psychologist come in and try to ask me if I had tried to attempted suicide or anything. And of course I lied because I knew that if I, if I was honest, I was, I was going to be put in a mental institute. And then I had another lovely conversation with a police officer who gave me a texting and driving ticket. And so I had gone up there to make an attempt on my life. And I left with a herniated disc in my lower back and a texting and driving ticket. Um, so I kind of got out of that. Kind of got out of that a little bit easy. Um, yeah, but that was, uh, I, you know, that was, it, was, it was very hard for me. So I, at this point in my life, I do consider myself a suicide survivor. Um, and I have had to come to peace with that. And that's something I will discuss in a little bit. So also that year, um, that last senior year, after all of, all of that was happening, um, I started to really experiment with methamphetamine and this is when my life started to get really really dark as it I mean it was it was already dark but it started to to take to take a much darker turn so I had gotten to the point where I I was involved with a couple of buddies and we were smoking meth um I I would go on like three four day binges I wouldn't sleep and I, I had really gotten to this point where I had done so much damage to my brain from all the drugs that I had done that I would take one hit of meth and I would go into what they call stimulant psychosis. And the easiest way that I can describe stimulant psych- psychosis um, is basically it is chemical induced schizophrenia. And it's, it's kind of like what I described just a little bit ago. But it's um, you, you hallucinate, you're paranoid, um, you kind of you really start to lose touch with reality. And I'd gotten to the point where um, whenever I smoked meth, I would go into this basically parallel universe of um, delusional thinking and anxiety and paranoia. And I would hallucinate things. I would see people that weren't there. Um they, you know, it, it got, it got pretty, pretty dark. And I, and I went through the rest of my high school career, um, smoking meth. And then when I got to my high school graduation, which I barely made it through high school cause I wasn't going to any of my classes. Um, my parents were so fed up with my behavior that they just wanted me to go somewhere. And so I got a job at a summer camp, um, as like a camp counselor, and I thought it would be a good idea to go cold, tur- uh, cold turkey off of methamphetamine and go try to detox around a bunch of children at summer camp. That sounded like a really good idea to me. So I went out to this summer camp. And while I was there, I started having like these crazy, this crazy phenomenon of craving. And I started to, I started to obsess about narcotics. And so I started stealing drugs from like the the campers and the, you know, the, my coworkers, my camp counselors and stuff until eventually my boss kicked me out, um, told me it was about time to leave that job. And, um, 
I ended up having to go to a, a hotel that I was only for a couple nights. And then I ended up at a hostel for about a month and I was still drinking and partying, doing whatever. And, um, at that time I thought it was a good idea to text my two buddies that were my, my meth buddies in Colorado Springs and told them to come pick me up. And then I wanted to start smoking meth again. And they came and they picked me up um, and we started smoking immediately. And once again, the intention of this story, I'm not trying to war story. I'm really trying to like clue people into like what what it's like um, to to actually be in the scariest meth induced psychosis. So we, we started driving back home. When we got back home, we, um, we picked up meth immediately, and I went on a, probably a three-day binge with methamphetamine. And on about the third day, I was incredibly anxious. Um, incre- you know, I was very, very paranoid about people and, and weird, you know, just out of kind of losing my mind. And we went over to a... We went over to a party, kind of like a house party, where there was only probably 12 people in it or something like that. And to decrease my anxiety, I decided that I was going to just sit on the sofa. I put on my headphones, put on some music, and then I was just going to just listen to music and just try to chill myself out. And I had probably one of the craziest experiences that I've ever had where... Until this day, I don't actually know what happened, but the the way that I can describe it is that I started to experience parallel universes through my psychosis. So I was sitting in this, I was sitting in this chair, basically just listening to music, and then I would have flashes of about 10 to 15 seconds of like an entirely different situation that was actually happening. So I would sit, I was sitting there, and then all of a sudden, Everyone in the party's yelling at me. They're all screaming at me. They're all like saying that I'm like a I'm a fuckface or doing you know doing whatever whatever. And then about 15 seconds later, I go into this other reality where everyone's praising me. They're saying how cool I am. One of the women at the party is trying to like have sex with me in the bathroom or something. And then I go into this other reality where um, it was probably the same the first reality that I went to, but it was just probably like progressed. But I went into this reality where they, the people at the party had said that they had called the cops on me and that there was, um, you know, that, that I was being super disruptive or something like that. And then I went back into the normal reality where I was just sitting there listening to music. And that happened for about an hour where I was just like every about 10 to 15 seconds, I was just going into the like, and it could have just been realistically, it could have just been like all of my internal fears and all my like grandiosity was kind of being projected um, into another level of my psyche. But after about an hour of that happening, I, I lost it. And I, um, I told the, the person who was at the, one of, one of the people at the party, I told them like, Hey man, like the cops are coming. I'm going to, I'm going to go leave this party. And and then everyone just looked at me like, what, you know, what the hell's Kyle doing? Because the cops obviously weren't coming for me. Um, so I had, I had this, this whole night I was basically just wandering, wandering around in psychosis. I had a run in with the cops at some point. 
I had, um, and you know, they told me to go to a homeless shelter and it's like some weird stuff. And at the end of the night, I ended up at a, in front of a hospital. And as I'm sitting in front of this hospital, I started to have like these hallucinations that demons were coming for me to try to take my soul. And I had this experience where I, I, I really can't explain till this day where something possessed me, something entered my body and my entire body went into full paralysis. And just like I locked up like a board, I couldn't move, I couldn't talk, I couldn't do anything. And then all of a sudden, something made me bite down on my tongue as hard as it possibly could until it was bleeding. And then it was gone. And I was I kind of sat up in my chair, I started spitting blood onto the on the concrete. And um, to this day, I have no idea. I could I could have just been low on potassium. Like, who knows? Because I hadn't eaten in three days and I could have just my body just kind of locked up. But I had this experience um, where where I, I really started to see the dark side of methamphetamine. And I, I truly believe in my heart that like meth is the devil's drug. Because I think that it really brings you the furthest away from God or from the Almighty or whatever you want to call it as you can possibly be. And I, 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 I don't know what the hell happened that night because I was so out of my mind. Like looking back on it today, I don't have, I don't have a great explanation for it. Um, and uh, the next day after all that had happened, I, I convinced my parents to let me go back to my house. And... Um, my parents and I started getting in bigger fights. I started to become physically aggressive towards my dad. My dad and I started to get in physical altercations with each other. And um, kind of like what I had, I had described earlier in my, my third suicide attempt. So when you're, on, when you're on stimulants, you truly have no emotional regularity. And when you feel an emotion, you feel an extreme of that emotion. And so like when I was suicidal, it was like I was depressed and then immediately went to suicidal. So when I came back into my house, after all these other crazy events had happened, I had started to get very, very angry. And when you're angry in psychosis on methamphetamine, you become homicidal. And I had gotten to the point where um, basically every time I had smoked meth, I would start planning on ways and means on how to kill my family. Um, and, it, and it took me down a very dark road. And I, I had another experience where one night I had, um, I had stolen something from my mom to pawn. or done, I, had done, I had done something stupid. And my dad came, to, he came down to talk to me. And I got very, very violent with him. And I got up in his face. And... Um, there was about a five second window where I had completely lost touch with who I was as a person and I was going to kill my father. Um, I was seconds away from doing it. I was starting to kind of plan out how I was, how I was about to do this. And um, I was already starting to think ahead that like, okay, if I'm going to kill him, I'm going to have to go upstairs and I'm going to have to kill the rest of my family. And, I was, I was about to do it. And, um, by the grace of God, 
um, I came back to myself. And in that moment that I came back to myself, I started bawling, crying. Um, it was like the most intense fear that I've ever had probably in my entire life. And I went into the next room, I grabbed my drugs, I grabbed a couple articles of clothing, and I ran out of the house as fast as I could. Um, and the reason that I did that and the reason that I was so afraid is because I, I was afraid for my family. Because I knew in that moment, um, I knew in that moment what exactly I was capable of doing. And um, thank God I, I did not do that. Thank God I did not do that. Um, but this is truly, truly when I started seeing the depth and the evil of methamphetamine. Is is it, it brought it brought out a side? It, it it introduced me to demons. <laughs> I really, really, truly believe in my heart that methamphetamine introduced me to demons and it brought out a part of me. Um, I, it brought out a part of me that I like to call the destroyer, which is um, not somewhere that I want to be. Um, so I went through um, the rest of my life in Colorado Springs, um, you know, kind of couch surfing and um, doing as much drugs as I possibly could until, uh, one day my parents convinced me to go to rehab once again. And, um, I said that I was going to go to rehab basically just to kind of get them off of my case. And I went out to a, another rehab out in New Mexico, which has been shut down. Um, but I went out there for this wilderness rehab. I still didn't quite want to get sober, and so I was still kind of lying. Um, I managed to get high in rehab a couple of times. And after that rehab was done, I went out to a sober living house out in North Carolina. And when I got out to North Carolina, I ended up um, relapsing immediately. And they kicked me out of the house. And then they called me the next day and told me that they wanted to bring me into like more of an intensive care unit, you know, to give me more supervision. And, you know, it, was, it costed, you know, $5,000 more a month and some bullshit. And so I went in, I came back into the program once again, still not wanting to get sober and still learning. You know, I had learned how to pass drug tests at a young age, so it was easy to do at this rehab. And so. I went through my my stint at this this sober living house using as much as I could, um, failing to take any suggestions from anyone around me. I, I started finding one of my other addictions, which was my food addiction, because when I wasn't able to I wasn't able to get high all the time, I needed to eat. And so I got into sugar quite a bit and sugar in that. And I ended up gaining quite a bit of weight um, while I was in this sober living. Um, also while I was at this sober living, I, um, I had gotten caught a couple of times and they did after about six or eight months of me being there, they did kick me out and I was at a homeless shelter for a couple nights and I had run into, um, you know, surprise, surprise, someone who knew how, uh, how to make methamphetamine. And so I had gotten involved with this guy. We had taken a trip down to his house in, um, South Carolina. And, um, we started, he started making meth and, you know, a bunch of things unfolded, but apparently this, this gentleman that I was involved in, this upstanding citizen, 
he um, had a warrant out for his arrest. And when we showed up to his house, his neighbors had called the cops on him. And so him, um, him and I, and then like a few of his buddies, we were in his house, like trying to make meth and the cops showed up. And of course we were freaking, freaking out. And so the cops came in, they didn't find out about the meth, but they took, um, they took that guy that I drove down to South Carolina with to jail. And, um, what that ended up doing is, oh, I, I skipped a part of the story in order to get out to South Carolina the guy that I was with ended up stealing a car. And so we were, so when he had gotten arrested, he ended up leaving me with a stolen car and he left me with all of the materials to make methamphetamine. And we had been doing all kinds of narcotics and I was, I was starting to kind of black out. And all I remember is I had gone to park on the side of the road somewhere and I was, you know, swiftly greeted by a knock on the window um, from someone saying that they from a police officer saying that there was um, a suspicious vehicle. And um, she put me into the back of her car um, and I was found in possession of uh, a stolen vehicle. And I was also charged for manufacturing of methamphetamine. And I spent um, I spent a month in jail in uh, South Carolina and that was that was probably one of my first bottoms that I had ever gotten to was um I was 19 at the time I was piss scared because everyone that I was in there with I was I was in a I was in jail with a guy who who had gotten incarcerated for sniping people on top of a Kmart like I had like I was you know I was a 19 year old who just liked to do drugs um this was not a place for me and I was I was cowering while I was in there. And while I was in there, I managed to get in contact with the sober living that had kicked me out. And um, they could hear the humility in my voice. Um, but really, it was just me being terrified because I didn't want to be around all these these gangbangers. Um, but they ended up um, helping me post my bail. And they uh, let me back into my sober living, which I... Um, did well for a little bit. Um, but once again, still didn't want to be sober. (laughs) I still didn't want to be sober. I felt like it was the better of two evils. Um, as opposed to, you know, I was either going to have to go to rehab or I was going to be in jail. And so I decided that I was going to, you know, do, do the same thing that I had done last time. And I was going to keep lying, cheating and stealing and, um, keep using my way through sober living. And eventually they, um, we reached a point where they had helped me set up an apartment And, um, I had finally moved out on my own for, for the first time in my entire life. I didn't have anyone to hold me accountable. Um, I didn't have any drug tests that I had to take or anything. And that was not fucking good for me. Um, this is when I started to arrive at my bottom. So when you, I had free reign for the first time ever, (laughs) I had free reign. Um, my, my parents were still kind of financially supporting me, so I didn't have to get a job. Um, I was um, doing everything that I could possibly put into my body. I was eating as much as I could possibly eat. It's, it's kind of weird, but I was, I, I, I was an obese meth addict. That was, it's such a weird thing, but it's because what would happen is that I would, 
I would buy a bunch of narcotics, not necessarily meth. I wasn't, I was usually smoking crack or cocaine, um, or I was doing ADD meds or drinking or doing something. And I would go on about like a week long binge and then I would run out of money. And so for the next couple of weeks, I would binge eat because food is a lot easier to find than narcotics are. And so I went through this stage where my metabolism was just flipping back and forth between not eating for a week and then binge eating for a couple of weeks. And so I ended up putting on about 70 or 80 pounds um, as I'm arriving at my bottom. And um, now I, I basically went, I, I think I went a year of doing that, of just like having free reign over my life, using as many as, uh, using as much as I could. I got to about the loneliest that I've ever been. Um, I was about 125 pounds overweight, um, basically on the verge of a heart attack. Um, I could barely walk without like my feet hurting. Um, I was I was out of my mind. I was starting to deviate my septums. I was I or my septum. I was starting to like I was I was losing it. And I had a I had an experience. I'm gonna I'm gonna try not to cry through this experience, but I had. Um, I want to talk about my bottom. So I had a, um, I had an experience where I I had been on another, another meth binge or another Folkland binge or, you know, whatever stimulant binge that I was on. And I had been up for about two or three days. And on the, on the second or third day of this binge, I once again started to kind of lose touch with reality. And for some reason, I thought that I had an an iPhone at the time. And for some reason, I thought that Apple was trying to send um, some a hitman after me to kill me and that they were tracking me on my phone. And so I decided that I was going to I tried to reset my password on like my Apple, my Apple um, or my iPhone so many times that it like locked me out of it or something. And I started panicking cause I thought that if I didn't reset my password, these hitmen were going to get me. And I ended up going out in some abandoned parking lot and I smashed my phone cause I thought that Apple was going to kill me. And, um, I mean, just, just to clue you in about how, how out of my mind I was. And I, I came back home and, um, when I came home, I was certain that the world was going to end. And realistically, I was just having a panic attack <laughs> induced um, by uh, sleep deprivation and being, you know, stimulants. And I was fairly certain that the world was ending. And then for some reason, I thought that instead of the world ending, it was just me dying because I was, you know, as you hyperventilate, you know, you kind of can start to lose consciousness a little bit. You can't see very, you know, your vision starts getting blurry. And I was convinced that I was taking my final breaths. Um, and this is the moment that got me sober. So I had, I don't know if anyone knows anything about pain, but when you are in emotional pain or when you are in physical pain, your brain cannot tell the difference. So when you are emotionally suffering, your body and your brain thinks that you are being tortured. So I had this moment where 
this moment of clarity where I thought I was taking my last breaths. I was supposed to go out to see my family in um, Colorado for Christmas in a couple of days. And um, I was certain that my parents were going to have to come to North Carolina and we're going to have to walk up in my apartment and find their son dead, um, laying in his bed. And I, um, I wrote a note that said I did everything for you. And what I meant by that is like, I, I lied, I lied, I cheated and I stole and I tried to hide my entire addiction so that I wouldn't hurt you. And, um, I said that I'm sorry on the very bottom of the letter. And I laid in my bed with this letter on the edge of my bed, convinced that I was dying. And I had this moment where I was so ashamed of myself. I was so ashamed of who I had become, of how selfish I was. And I could not believe that I had been selfish enough that my parents were going to have to find their fucking son dead in his bed, in his apartment. That moment in the amount of emotional pain at the, you know, I'm, I'm crying, I'm bawling. I can't, it was the most emotional pain I've ever been in. That moment is the moment that made me motivated to get sober. So the next morning, I woke up and um, obviously wasn't dead, calmed down from my from my um, my psychosis and my anxiety. I got on a plane and I flew back to Colorado and I had one of the worst Christmases that I've ever had in my entire life Um, because I came home and I told my parents everything. I told them um, that I had been lying and using and done everything. And, um, my dad told me, I remember that Christmas, it was in 2015. My sobriety date is 2023, uh, or is uh, December, December 23rd, 2015. And, um, so he had told me that Christmas that my mom was so angry at me. He said that like completely serious. He said that like, She's raised you. If she wants to take you out of this world, that's her decision. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> like, yeah. So he, my dad, they were so fucking angry at me that there was there was a moment where um, I I went into the basement at my parents' house and I locked the door for the next couple of days <laughs> because my mom was um, she was she was gonna kill me. Um, so that was the first time in my life that, um, by, by having that moment of catharsis and by telling, by telling my parents everything that I had done, that was my way of, of asking for my first genuine help. Um, sorry, folks, got to drink a little bit of water and talk for a long time. Um, that was my first experience into asking for help. Um, and at this point in, um, at this point in the story, I wanted to kind of move away from chronological order and I wanted to, 
discuss. Um, there's another big story that I have to talk about, um, but I wanted to kind of talk about some solution, which I know Alan and Crow, you know, we've been talking about being more solution oriented as, op- as opposed to just dancing around the problem, which is something that we can all get caught up in every once in a while. But I wanted to talk about um, what it took for me to get sober. So for me to get sober, as I just described, it was the shame, the crushing emotional pain that I had to go through, all of the guilt, um, me, me realizing just how selfish I was, and me also being faced with my mortality. So... There's a saying around the rooms that I have visited at some point that um, the next thing that I think the it's like the next thing you lose is going to be more important than what you want to lose or I don't know. Crow, you might do you you have any idea what I'm talking about? There's 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 some phrase saying that like most people when most people reach their bottom, um, the next thing that that they're going to lose is too important to them. And the next thing that I I had like this intuitive sense that I was, um, I was 125 pounds overweight. I was a chronic using stimulant addict at that weight. Um, I was not eating right. I was not sleeping well. I had this intuitive feeling that if I did not get sober, I wasn't going to make it to my next birthday. And uh, so I was truly faced with my own mortality. So that is that is what it took for me at my bottom in order to make me want to make some type of drastic difference in my life. And I want to be super clear that the way that I have gotten sober and the way that I know that everyone else has gotten sober is going to be different from case to case. So the way that I got sober is probably not going to work for everyone and that's okay but I want to give a little glimpse into the mindset of what it takes and there are some things within my mindset that I think are ubiquitous like the amount of um, determination that it takes the amount of discipline that it takes um, there is amount of there is a a fair amount of humility that needs to come into especially like I can only speak from my experience with drug addiction, but I know that there was a great amount of humility that needed to take place that I think is pretty ubiquitous across the field. Um, and in my first like true months of sobriety where this is the time where I didn't want to die, I didn't want to be selfish, I wanted to actually get sober. One of the first things that I ended up doing is I had to shut up and start listening. That was one of the things is that I've always been a big talker because I, I always wanted to be the person with that had the most attention on him in the room. I always wanted like I didn't want anyone to ignore little Kyle. And so one of the things that I noticed is when I started to get sober, um, I had I had people around me who were already sober, who I noticed were a lot happier than I was in life. And I wanted what they had. And in order to do that. I had to acknowledge I had to come to this great sense of like humility that my way was not working and that other people probably know more than I do. And so the first thing I started doing is that I shut the fuck up 
and I started listening to what other people had to say. But I didn't just have to hear what they had to say. I started implementing the things that they had to say. So I was part of a, um, I was part of a, a 12 step group that will remain nameless, but I was part of this, this group where I went through the steps and I, I, I had gotten to the point of, um, doing the acceptance, acceptance piece. I, you know, I had gotten to the point of like truly humbling myself to the experience and surrendering my, surrendering myself to this experience. And one of the biggest things for me in early sobriety and this, this, once again, this isn't going to work for everyone else. You have to find your own path. But one of the biggest things for me was doing an inventory on my resentments and this inventory. So what, what they say in this program that I'm involved in is that there are two types of spiritual experiences. There is one of the educational variety, which is where you learn enough in order to overcome the person that you are. And then there's the burning bush experience where you have this crazy out of body. Oh, Jesus is speaking to me through the trees or, you know, whatever the hell's happening. And when you do an inventory on yourself, and you truly take a look at your part, you have a spiritual experience of the educational variety. And what that actually looks like is that I had gone into, you know, listing all of the people that I was resentful towards and, you know, right. And and then after you write all the things that you're resentful towards, you have to write how you were selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. So you have to basically flip it on its side and you have to look at what is your part in this situation. And so an example would be like, you know, little Susie Q kicked me in the nuts in fifth grade. So that was the resentment. But then how was I selfish? I didn't want little Susie Q to kick me in the nuts. You know, I wanted her to act the way that I thought that she should act. I wanted her to, you know, I wanted her to like me. I wanted her to appreciate me. And then how was I dishonest? I told, I told little, I lied to myself and I told myself that Susie Q was a total bitch and that, you know, I was a better person than her and which also wasn't true. And then self-seeking is I went out and I turned around and I started telling all my friends that little Susie Q kicked me in the nuts and I started judging her and I started, um, you know, I probably pulled little Susie Q's pigtails down or something. And then how I was frightened And the fear part of this inventory is when it really gets down to the nitty gritty where you start figuring out, um, you know, I was afraid of not being good enough. I was afraid of not being seen the way that I wanted to. I was afraid of being judged. I was afraid of not being, you know, accepted into a friend group or something like that. And after you do all these resentments, I had to go into a fear inventory, which is where you basically dissect every fear that you've ever had in your entire life and why you have them. And for me, that was the most profound experience because I came to this level of true humility and it was able to break down my victim mentality where, where I was able to see that most of the issues that I've ever had with anyone in my entire life are usually my fault because I have done something to them. I have been selfish in some way, dishonest in some way. I've acted out of fear in some way. That was one of the biggest things that I had to do in early sobriety. One of the other things that I was doing is I was attending an IOP group, um, an intensive outpatient program, 
you know, where they were teaching us coping skills and how to deal with relationships, how to deal with boundaries, relapse prevention, all that kind of stuff. And I started actually implementing those things into my life. Um, I started, you know, I started creating a support group around me of people that would hold me accountable and that wouldn't let me bullshit my way through life anymore. Um, I started also my first little bit of sobriety. Um, one of the, the most profound things that I found that helped me, especially when you're recovering from narcotics, is to start working out. So one of the things that I started doing is I started going to the gym every day. I started changing my diet and I started to notice that my depression was going away. My sense of loneliness, I, my libido was starting to come back. Um, and I ended up losing about 100 pounds within my first couple of years of sobriety. Um, I got off of all of the, the um, medications that I was on because I had been misdiagnosed when I was a kid because I was doing drugs and it's hard to diagnose someone who's doing drugs. And I'm not saying that no one should take medication. I'm, it's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the medication wasn't working for me. And when I got off of them, I had to deal with how to cope with my emotions in a healthy way, you know, how to, how to, um, how to respond to other people when I'm feeling triggered and how, you know, how to, I started to navigate through my emotions for the first time. Um, I had also got into, um, a little bit later, I had started getting into making amends to some of the people that I had, that I had, um, wronged in my life. And that, that brought about like wonderful opportunities for me. Um, I started going to therapy more. And the biggest thing that this is the thing I want to hammer home to all of the listeners work on your trauma. That was one of the biggest things for me. And the thing that most people in recovery don't understand is that the alcohol and the drugs are just a symptom of what we're feeling on the inside. What we're really feeling is we're, we have low self-esteem, we have unresolved trauma, we're depressed, we feel lonely, and that's why we start drinking or start using drugs, not the other way around. And so when you get sober, the biggest things that I had to deal with is I had to first start dealing with my abandonment trauma. I had to start come into acceptance that people weren't going to leave me. I had to start dealing with, um, I started going to um, EMDR therapy, which is a, a form of trauma therapy. And I started getting into, I started getting into neurofeedback, which is something that I still do today, which is kind of a cousin of EMDR, which is a type of, which is a type of kind of trauma therapy and helps kind of regulate your neural pathways in your brain. Um, I got into a, a workshop called a loving relationships training. And I started working on forgiving myself and to um, show a little bit of self-compassion. And I got to this point in this training where we were starting to do this, this breath work um, called holotropic breath work, which is for anyone who's listening. um, Do not try to do holotropic breath work by yourself. Do it with a trained psychologist, someone that can help walk you through these experiences because what holotropic breath work does is that it is a form of trauma therapy where you kind of get to go back and relive your trauma experiences and kind of piece together some of the things that are that are awry. It's very yeah, it's very, very intense. Um, 
it's not for the faint of heart, but it was something that just at this point in my recovery, my first, this was all within my first year of recovery. Um, I started to go back and start to start to repair almost on a, on like a DNA level who I was as a person. And I started to, you know, really lean into this high level of self-compassion. And, um, shortly after that, I did my first sweat lodge. And the intention of doing my first sweat lodge was that I was going to once again, go into some more self-repair trauma recovery and um, I wanted to find myself through this sweat lodge, which I did find parts of myself in this sweat lodge. And um, so at this point within my first year of recovery, I had done a set of steps. I was working with other men in recovery. I had done multiple types of therapy in order to like in to really take accountability for my own actions um, I was making amends with people who I had wronged to once again take accountability for my actions. I was I, I was shutting up and I was taking advice from everyone around me. And um, my life had gotten substantially better within my first year of recovery because I was the way that I saw it was that I was on a I was on the clock that if I did not if I did not get sober and I did not do the right thing, I was probably going to die. Because that's that's the way that I view my my sobriety right now, that my two options are that I stay sober and I do the right thing or I go back out and I die. So that and that's one of those things that I have to keep reminding myself whenever I'm feeling triggered um, to do drugs or anything. I have this this technique where I have to play the whole tape out and playing the whole tape out really means that whenever I'm thinking about picking up that drug or doing some type of destructive behavior, I have to play the whole scenario out in my head. I'm like, how is this actually going to work? And I know what's going to end up happening is that if I pick up a drug, um, I'm going to start losing trust with people. Um, I'm going to start this crazy self-destructive pattern, and then I'm probably going to end up dying. That keeps me from that keeps me away from drugs most of the time. Um, so I went through um, recovering from basically all of my my defects of character um, through all of the various means that I just spoke about. And I ended up back in Colorado Springs um, probably about four years back and um, started, wor- you know, started working in um, the addiction recovery field out here. I started working at a mental um, hospital out here working with adolescents who were, you know, bipolar or schizophrenic and stuff like that, just trying to trying to kind of give back some of the experience that I've already had. And I had another massive experience um, about three years, I think it was about three years ago, where I was. Um, so before before I say this, I want to just preface that there are there's two forms of trauma. There is big T trauma and there's little T trauma. So once again, just like physical or emotional pain, your body responds to big T trauma and little T trauma the same way. So little T trauma is basically where my abandonment trauma. So that was something that like, you know, I didn't have anything super horrific happen to me, but it had still affected my psyche in various ways. And then there's the big T trauma, which is where like you see someone get their head cut off or something like that. And it's, you know, or, you know, soldiers in war where they come back with PTSD. That's big T trauma. 
so I had this experience where I I've had gone through my entire life just knowing little T trauma. And one night I was hanging out at my apartment or my, the condo that I was staying out with, um, with my, one of my buddies where he was my roommate at the time and we were making dinner and, um, he had a couple of his buddies over and my roommate had a couple of guns in the house. And, um, my roommate, one of my, one of my roommates buddies was messing around with one of the guns. And my roommate said, Hey man, like go fuck yourself. Took all the bullets out of the gun, out of this revolver. And, um, his buddy decided that he was going to load one round back into the revolver and was going to play Russian roulette. And um, as my buddy and I, my roommate and I are cooking dinner, um, we hear a gunshot go off behind us and we turn around and um, one of his friends had shot himself in the head right in front of us. Um, And that was my first experience with big T trauma um, of having to call the police, having to talk to homicide detectives. Um, I had the next couple of years. I mean, this was just three years ago. This is, this happened while I was sober. Um, in the next three years or the, the next like two years of my life, um, I had to, I had to experience what like true PTSD was, um, where I was afraid that people around me were going to die. I didn't feel safe. Um, I had a tough time sleeping. I had, you know, huge flashbacks of that night. Um, and the way that I, I overcame that, which is something that I had already ingrained within my recovery was that I needed to go to therapy. <laughs> and so by the grace of God, I had already had that muscle memory of like, I need to keep working on myself. I need to keep like powering through this stuff. And so I spent, I've spent the last three years of my life doing intense, intense neurofeedback sessions. Um, a lot of them talking to, um, going through talk therapy, um, trying to deal with like some coping skills on like, you know, how to deal with, um, PTSD triggers and, um, how to get to a place of not being a victim, but being a survivor of trauma. And that was something that I had a monumental breakthrough about a year and a half ago, um, where I, I understood the difference between victor and victim and survivor. And I can now sit here and speak about how I am a survivor of trauma. And because it was one of those experiences where once again, like when, when, when a gun goes off and someone dies, um, the first thought of my head was like, I could have died. You know, that gun could have gone off and hit anyone. And then, and then it, it kind of trickles down into there about like, Oh, the people around me are going to die. And so I had to backstep my way and unpeel the onion or and peel the onion to get down to the heart of, um, finding my own safety in my environment. And that is something, um, it's kind of a unique experience, but at the same time, I know that there's a lot of people who have gone through something similar. And I want to let the listeners know that if, if you've dealt with something as horrific as that, um, there is recovery. Um, I'm grateful to say that I'd never picked up a drug. It didn't even come into my mind um, because I had already done so much work. But if you're dealing with experiences like that, 
you got to go see someone. You got to go talk to a therapist. You have to like, you have to go, especially, or if you, or if you're, if you know someone in your life that has done that and you have like, you almost have like vicarious trauma or something like you got to go deal with, you have to go talk to someone about it because trauma will completely consume your life. It will consume your emotions. Um, I mean, there, there was, there was times when after that had happened where I was, I was so afraid to sleep in my bed alone that I would, I would, um, push a chair in front of my door because I was afraid that someone, someone was going to come into my room and kill me in the middle of the night. Like, that's how, like, that's how like consumed you get, um, by trauma. But my solution was trauma therapy, EMDR, um, or neurofeedback or some type of other talk therapy or something like you, you got to do something about it. Um, but listeners like you believe me, like you were not alone in that experience. Um, so that is something that I've recently, recently recovered from. And I'm, I'm at this place now where I'm at this maintenance phase where, um, I've overcome my abandonment trauma and I am happily engaged to be married in April, um, to a wonderful woman. Um, my PTSD has gone down significant. I still get triggered by guns sometimes for sure. Um, and that's something that I'm, I might have to battle for the rest of my life. Um, my sobriety is no longer really an issue as long as I continue to maintain uh, the things that I'm doing. Um, my maintenance looks like um, I meditate all every single day. Um, I work out um, almost every single day if I can. I try to make sure that I'm getting at least eight hours of sleep every night. I watch what I eat. Um, I don't eat sugar anymore. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I've I have dis- distanced myself from my my sugar addiction quite a bit. Um, I go to therapy regularly. Still, I still do my neural feedback just to kind of like keep my brain as tuned up as it possibly can. Um, I have a support network around me. Um, I know that like Alan and Crow are, you know, two people that try to hold me as accountable as they can. And I have a couple of other people in my life that I try to, um, because I'm a good bullshitter and I need people around me who can see straight through the bullshit. And I think that that's an incredibly valuable thing to have. Um, and I work on self care quite a bit. So I do things Um, you know, like, you know, eating right or working out or doing all that kind of stuff. But I try to get massages. I try to spend some time in nature. I try to, um, you know, I play video games, I play music. I, you know, just try to do things that like truly bring me joy. And I try to work on, um, emotional regulation as much as I can. I try to hold myself accountable as much as I can. And, um, and, and I'm trying to stay as curious as I possibly can at this point in my life. And I think that that's one of the most crucial things that when you start getting into addiction recovery is that you have to remain curious. You have to remain curious about the world, about your relationships. You have to be introspective with yourself. So you have to really look at like, Um, you know, like I had to look at like, who is Kyle, you know, how does Kyle show up in the world, you know, and I have to really take an inventory on myself sometimes. And am I, am I being selfish right now? If I get in an argument with my fiance, it's like, you know, like what, what was my part in that? You know, what was I trying to gain from that? Was I being selfish with my intentions? Was I, you know, was I too attached to expectations about what, you know, how she should be? 
Um, and yeah, and um, I would say right now that I'm I'm at I'm at this place now where I'm ready to give back the gift that has been given to me through my my step experience and through my therapy and everything. I, I'm at this place now where. I'm strong enough to be able to give the gift back. And I truly think that like the gift of sobriety is, is, is true in my life. Um, so anyone who's listening, um, I did skim over quite a few things. I know this has been a long, this has been a long story, but recovery is possible. Um, trauma recovery is possible. It doesn't matter how, deep down the well or down the hole you think you are like recovery is possible. You just got to give it a chance and you got to be willing to take the necessary steps and you have to be willing to go through the hard work that it takes. And that's all I got. Absolutely. Thank you, Kyle. Yes. Thanks Kyle. Wow. What a story. Yeah. What a story. Yeah. Man, I've got a whole page here full of notes. <laughs> I'm going to bring them out. I don't know if today's uh, we're going to be out of time or what? Yeah, we're looking pretty good. Why don't we go ahead and hit a few, and if we decide we need to carry on, because after hearing that, my story is going to be pretty boring. It's going to be, yeah, I was fucked up. I yeah. drank some, and then I got bored and Relatively stopped. Relatively quick. That's it. I, there's, mine's done. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, thanks. No, no man, I think it'll be great. Uh, yeah. No, I think it'll I, be great. You, you hit so many things. I mean... I could go all the way back to the, um, throughout this, one thing that really, really gets me, sorry about that, I was backing away from the mic there. <laughs> yes, the guy who, guy who sang ear. in bands for years <laughs> yeah. has no idea how a microphone works. Um, yeah, um, you know, the, what, what amazes me is how throughout your story, you always seem to come back to these moments of clarity that weren't your aware state you you came into something that brought you touchstone back into reality of some kind mm-hmm. that said oh this is wrong it was like this 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 consciousness that comes back throughout your story that says okay this sucks but i'm going to keep going to cover it up and mask it and but then occasionally whether south carolina colorado you you throughout it you've got these store these these moments and it just always amazes me how they're like there you know many instances it sounds like it's what saved your ass uh yeah and and uh well do you chris since you work in this field do you think that that's kind of a a common thing you know for me when i was drinking heavy you know even nights i'd be at the bar getting completely wasted I'd be like, this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. Wake up the next day. I'm like, how did I get home? What the fuck is wrong with me? You know? Or I'd wake up and be like, who's this girl? No idea. This is wrong. This is you wrong. know, like, this is I think wrong. there's this, like, you know, certain nature that we have that we know that these destructive, self medicating um, tendencies are wrong. Well, you know, but yeah. it, it, it's, you don't have the tool or you don't have the willpower or you don't have whatever to just stop. I mean, luckily for me, like, I just got bored and stopped. Yeah. Right? I didn't, you know, but. I, I think it's, 
I think it's inherent uh, from a spiritual angle. It's the only place I can come at this with is it cracks in our, our, our reality of every kind that we would like to build or that the brain is building, and it comes from a different place. And it says, this is wrong against your nature, mm-hmm. against you. And I, th- it's, it's, I don't know, that's a different question perhaps for, for, a, for a deep spiritualist on this one. Uh, but a deep a spiritual psychologist, I guess. But it, it begs the question that if we have this inherent nature to protect ourselves both neurologically and physiologically, we so do we spiritually, absolutely. And that's what we, uh, you know, I think you, you fell to each and every one of those times. I know I have, where it's just this profound uh, rattling of your, your constitution that says, this is against who I am completely. Mm-hmm. And, I, and so I have my why, I just don't know how. I don't know how to get out of this, and uh, but I'm going to do what I've always done, uh, and that's just drink more mm-hmm. or use more. Uh, well, that's the easy way. That's well, it's the one, it's the way we know, um, and you know I'm done blaming the the you know running after the symptom. I'm done with that because most people that I've that I in this in this industry we know. It's just everybody, nobody wants to do this. Nobody wants to be there. It's just we don't know a different way. Mm-hmm. And your story is just filled with that, which I just love those, those moments that you did. You did remember those, and those are important. Mm-hmm. And uh, otherwise, you wouldn't have even talked about those little glimpses, almost like they were a, they were a chapter closed between each segment of this. Yeah horrific fucked up ride you you set yourself on yeah it's almost like each chapter closed it closed with i know this is wrong mm-hmm. and then i just kept bearing it down <laughs> yep, and I, just, I really think it's on to the next adventure yeah i really think it's 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 almost like for me it was like moments of shame where like i was i was so ashamed of like what i what i had been doing but then for me like you would like you had been saying it was I, I use the narcotics and the women and the food as a way to disassociate from the high levels of shame that I had because it was because I was like because I knew I was fucked up, you know, like I'd been told my entire life by parents and teachers and girlfriends and everything that like I was a I was a basket case, you know, and so I knew that I was fucked up. I just didn't want to acknowledge that I was fucked up. <laughs> right. And so yeah. what what's the story that you tell here in the in the first the first time that this really manifested that you remembered and it stuck out to me is that you're in the hospital with your parents and yeah. they come in and you said um it, it was a warning. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> anger, like yeah. fear, like, yeah. uh, folks, buckle up. This it is going to be one fucked up it was, teen ride for Kyle. It, it was foreshadow. <laughs> it was really, total yeah. foreshadowing. Absolutely. Because it was also, it seemed to me in the way you told it, it was laced with anger, not only just fear and shame and guilt, but it was mm-hmm. laced with a, uh, this, this, you know, it's so prevalent with addiction. With all of us, is it's always going to be housed in anger, yeah, and of course, and we're going to lash that back out. 
mm-hmm. as if to protect right. what I don't know. Well, and, and when you're that young, too. So, like, think yeah, about yeah, saying that 16. now. What were you? You'd 16? be like, yeah. You, uh, 15. Yeah, yeah so, you know, uh, at, at this age, you'd be like, well, what a stupid thing to say. Just be like, okay, I'm fucked up. I got to fix this shit, yeah, you know. But exactly. at 15, like, hey, you don't have the resources. You're probably pretty defiant. You got the hormones going crazy. Mm-hmm. You've yep. got... You don't know how to cope with your emotions. You don't know how to cope with your feelings. Mm-hmm. You don't want to because that shows that weakness that we've discussed before. And you, you know, so you've got this maelstrom of just—it's a shitstorm in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, so you did have some awareness mm-hmm. that and this was happening, right? And how do you fix that? How do you, how do you fix that in a child? And that's really. You know, uh, maybe one of our guests down the road who's worked with youth can give us some insight to that. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, that would be we, great. You know, we, we're working so, on that yeah, one. Right. Alan, so, sure. you know, so to me, that that's because I was, you know, and we'll have my story, and it, there's similarities. You know, I mean, yours is definitely started like when you were first talking i'm like oh this is just like mine and then i'm like oh well no no, that's not no like uh you know so this gets worse oh yeah and like mine was i'm like well you know whatever but um so yeah it's that's that's a a great question and and uh, i have a note on this when it when we come to the solution which I haven't even tapped into yet because there's so many beauties in the solution. Mm-hmm. And I want to spend more time focusing on the solution because that's, that's mm-hmm. my bag here. Well, um, but, but when you, you said, like, going back to the 15-year-old Kyle mm-hmm. that's lashing out that shell and anger. But I want to come to it later, but I want to readdress this. Look at the culture. The culture of, well, our country, for mm-hmm. one. Um, that that how how we're trained are are we prepared outside of parents if we're not blessed with the fact that they're you know trained psychologists to help guide us through these these difficult times that's bullshit there's no parents that are perfect yeah there's no family that's going to be without its trauma there's nobody yeah but we live and breed in a culture that is so disassociated from anything that 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 says here's how to reattach to yourself and here's how to reconnect when you're feeling isolated lonely in pain sh- shame guilt here's here's what those things are we don't even discuss that i i don't think to a reasonable level maybe i stand corrected on this i would love to see proof of that and i would love to see educators today that that do really enlighten me on this that would be fantastic to have them on the show but i certainly in our years Mm -hmm. and i know that uh that high school that you're referring to Mm -hmm. i went there yeah um but many many years prior to you Mm -hmm. but there was no such thing as this sort of holistic path of being in touch with yourself yeah that is just i don't know about kids today but i can tell you what, what they have today is a media that is could be your first addiction, which it usually is for most and, kids. And, uh, for sure. You know, correct me here on this, guys, but I don't think that's pulling one closer to a sense of self. I would agree. Right. So I would agree. With you. I, I, I think that I think mm-hmm. that to me, it seems like it's gotten more divergent. 
like there are more kids who are more fucked up and more detached and don't have and but then there are some parents who probably have done their own self work because this is you know moderate fairly new thing that are raising some kids that are like I'll, I'll meet kids I'm like holy shit this kid's got it together mm-hmm. like right. you know so, <laughs> yeah it's rare <laughs> yeah but you're like wow they're really self aware they're super polite you know their the ability to think critically they think critically they can have a conversation with an adult I couldn't I I remember I was talking to a friend of mine's kid at a concert six months ago or whenever it was. And I'm like, I couldn't talk to him when I was his age like this. I mean, it was like a normal conversation. Yeah. I was always very quiet, mm-hmm. you know, felt very insecure, uh, felt I was being judged, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, there's a fairly famous scientist who's a relative of ours. I had no idea. Came, he worked on the atomic bomb, built the first computer. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like a great uncle or something. Greek guy. Um, Nick Metropolis is his name. You can find him on Wikipedia if you're, (laughs) if you're so inquired. So anyway, he comes, he comes to see our family. I'm in high school and we're having a barbecue and he's trying to have a conversation with me. And I'm just like, uh, you know, like, and I'm like this, some kids would be like, be able to have a conversation with this guy and like yeah. not seem like a dumbass, right? Yeah. So then you you start snowballing like oh, I'm kind of stupid. I should just keep my mouth shut, you know, kind of thing. So insecurity, right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Um, anxiety. So there's anxiety. a Peter Bregan book called Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety, which is one to read. People, we'll put it in the notes if we ever get around to doing show notes. Um, so you got all those factors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. You know, I th- I think it's interesting. You know, I think most kids, and I think it has gotten worse since we were kids. Like, you know, I think there was some level of attachment. Not everyone was stuck on a phone. You actually had to have a conversation with people. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to have some kind of human interaction. And now, you know, like, this is my best friend. Oh, have you ever met him? No, I don't even know where he lives. But, <laughs> you know, we, we play, yeah. we play, you know, whatever. Uh, Whatever. Yeah, I, I don't do video buddies. games. Yeah, or yeah. Uh, he lives across the country. Yeah, CS:GO or whatever they yeah. do. You know. <laughs> no, so, no. Um, but uh, yeah, so weird. It's weird. It's you know. I don't. Uh, uh, I derailed this. I'm sorry. Get no, no, me. you're fine. I think that was all relevant. I think that they, we've just arrived at a place, especially in the younger culture, where we have a complete detachment from the way that the world works. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I think that 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 is going to be a podcast for another time. It's going to be a great topic when we introduce uh, somebody into this conversation that does work with youth all the time. Mm -hmm. And then we can also uh, infiltrate into that narrative, the the media today, Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, the kids today are also in their 30s. and we see them that still can't get off their phones. So this started earlier, and it, go, it goes later. It's yeah. just the world we are. A um, lot of great things. A lot of great things to this age we live in. I love it. I love it. I love yeah. it. I love information being at the tip of our finger. Yeah, it's I unbelievable. Just, I just don't know about the the level of moderation that comes with just having that freedom. It's like having yeah. everybody this... Uh, you know, a weapon um, in your pocket 
um, being an iPhone. Uh, and and it's just, a, it, well, that's going to be a talk for another time. There could be a lot greater ways to implement and use that information. Source. Absolutely. But, but um, can we roll into the... the, the Absolutely. The, yeah. Uh, the solutions. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Kyle's story. We're going to continue this episode in episode 6.1, where I continue to receive feedback from Alan and Crow. All right, who's got the bowl? Kyle, pass me the bowl.